Good morning. I want to thank my friend Lowell Grisham and St. Paul's for inviting me to present this weekend. As you know best of all, Lowell is one of those saints who assure us of the spirit by their generosity of action and word. May retirement for Kathy and Lowell be all that they wish it to be. And may God's grace be a light upon their path. Some within the Christian tradition worry over the inclusion of the Psalms as part of the Bible. They question the seemingly gratuitous violence and occasional nativist sentiments voiced within the pages of the Psalms. One major denomination even deleted from its book of worship certain of the 150 Psalms found to be particularly objectionable. I've heard sincere and devout Christians say they skip over the Psalms in private worship or give them less attention. However, I argue that this attitude misreads and misinterprets the Psalms, which contain some of my favorite parts of the Bible. <clears throat> when we read, pray, or sing the Psalms, I believe we look for common and natural human responses that depart sharply from other scripture. Through the Old Testament, we learn history. We learn formation, a foundation, if you will, of the Judeo-Christian catechism. Also, rich stories that give us direction and convey the personality of the early God of the Hebrews. From the New Testament, we derive energy and electricity from the spiritual revolution that contrasts the new with the old. That spiritual radicalism the life of Christ invokes, challenges, and inspires. But what are the Psalms? What is or was their purpose? I cannot answer the ramifications of those questions in a few minutes, but I can plead an essential case for the Psalms. They were written simply as poems, and as poems, their features are unlike the logic and order of the Old and New Testaments. As poems, the Psalms are more personal, intimate, incisive, intense, transparent, highly emotional, unpredictable, humanist. The Psalter of 150 poems may in fact be the most influential set of poems merely as poems ever written. Frequently I, a poet, instruct by the parallel characteristics existing between poems I often read in the poetry journals today and the poems that appear in the Psalter of two to three millennia ago. As a sign of our times, many people today who do not darken the door of a church can and do recite large tracts of verses from the Psalms for individual reasons and observances that have little or nothing to do with organized religion. One Benedictine monk once described the Psalms with this illuminating remark. God behaves in the Psalms in ways he is not allowed to behave in systematic theology. 
Another writer put it this way, the Psalms work in the way that all great poetry works, allowing us to enter no matter who we are or what we believe or don't believe. So the Psalms are decidedly different from the rest of the Bible. They are simply we or us, depending on your preferred grammar. They are simply we or us in our dirty clothes and rumpled ways. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the 20th century German theologian and martyr, said of the Psalms, they mirror life with all its ups and downs, its passions and discouragements. In this vein, that is, as a result of the Psalms being reflective of our very nature, our basic humanity and vulnerabilities, Bonhoeffer called them, the Psalter as a whole, the prayer book of the Bible. Why a prayer book? For when we pray, we do not normally do so in the spirit of a catechism. At least I don't think so. I know I don't. I pray as part of an earnest search, a personal and intimate journey, a spiritual quest beyond where I am or even wish to be, frequently not knowing for what or how or when or where, and yet a verse from the Psalms that speaks directly to and for me can set me on my way. A brilliant but troubled college classmate and close friend died of hepatitis many years ago in his early 20s. He didn't know his father, who had been lost as a fighter pilot over the Pacific Ocean during World War II. The family decided, eloquently I thought, to have the same verse from Psalm 139 for the tombstone of the son as for the father. Where can I go then from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I climb up to heaven, you are there. If I make the grave my bed, you are there also. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand hold me fast. We look in the Psalms for ourselves, for our moments of disappointment, for our losses, including a possible silence from God to our prayers and pleadings. But then we discover a stunning and surprising inspiration and answer in the redemptive words of, let's say, Psalm 103. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy, slow to anger and of great kindness. He will not always accuse us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our wickedness. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. Sometimes I let myself fantasize that a fine poet from the New Testament era and persuasion stole into the editorial room around 500 BCE when the Psalter was first being codified for Second Temple services and stealthily inserted Psalm 103 among the poems of the Psalter. The Psalm 103 is so light and free, like a Mozart musical composition with its easy breathing and an abundance of forgiveness, delight, and uncompromising acceptance for every last one of us. 
One can contrast Psalm 103 with Psalm 119, the latter mechanically and constantly repeating words such as commandments, laws, judgments, statutes, decrees, and all the rest. If I had been on the Psalter Committee at a time when the original Psalter was put together, instead of some 2,600 years later, I would have argued strenuously for the removal of Psalm 119 from the total. Except for a couple of its lines, we could have easily clipped and pasted someplace else. Ah, Psalm 103. There are multiple unpredictable moments and descriptions that come to us from the poetry of the Psalms. On November the 9th and 10th of 1938, Nazi soldiers and sympathizers destroyed over a thousand synagogues in Germany and Austria and tore through countless Jewish homes and businesses, promoting savage anti-Semitism in their wake. These events have been dubbed by history as Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass. I am astounded how the Jewish verses of Psalm 74, composed many centuries beforehand, capture so fortuitously and tellingly the events of Kristallnacht. The enemy has laid waste everything in your sanctuary. Your adversaries roared in your holy place. They set up banners as tokens of victory. They set fire to your holy place. They defiled the dwelling place of your name and raised it to the ground. They burned down all the meeting places of God in the land. No one appreciated the Psalms and their remarkable surprises and visions more than Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote in his own Bible alongside those verses from Psalm 74, the date of November the 9th, 1938, Kristallnacht. In like manner, the resonance and currency of the poetry of the Psalms carried forward into the modern and postmodern world cannot be better demonstrated than through the adoption by the civil rights movement as an often applied mantra, the condensed two words, how long, from Psalm 13. Here are the verses from which the mantra was drawn. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I have perplexity in my mind? How long shall my enemy triumph over me? The appropriation of how long as a mantra illustrates the way phrases and clauses from the poetry of the Psalms can be and have been used often spontaneously for purpose and cause. At those times we seek out the psalms, we hear ourselves in the voices and circumstances of the psalmist. Another psalm that poignantly affects us this way is 137. It is also one of several psalms that debunk the legend that King David authored the poems contained in the Psalter. Upon the sacking of Judea by the Babylonians in 587 BCE, nearly half a millennium after David's rule, most of the Israelites endured a for forced march from Jerusalem and Judea to Babylon. And out of this experience came Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon we sat down and wept when we remembered you, O Zion. For those who led us away captive, ask us for a song. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. 
How shall we sing the Lord's song upon an alien soil? This poem is modern in its situational drama, reflective of so many situational poems of our own times. It is easy to imagine the degradation and despondency gripping the poet writing these lines, provoked to perform a psalm or song for a conquering army, conveying these Israelites to a foreign land and to an unknown, servile, and subordinate life. Nearer to home, one can conjure the effects of six Indian nations directed along the Trail of Tears through Arkansas during the 1830s, not far from here. Nor is it hard for us from Psalm 137 to recall the death run from Auschwitz to Glywitz told by Elie Wazell in Night. It is not just pathos on which we rely to sympathize with the Israelites enslaved and humiliated. The words of Psalm 137 are indeed our own. So many of the visions we gather from this poetry are irresistibly stunning. Psalm 22 in the crucifixion, they pierce my hands and my feet. They divide my garments among them. They cast lots for my clothing. We are then within the moment of the crucifixion, not as a reported occurrence, but because of the nature of poetry, the keenly personal impacts pierce my hands and my feet, divide my garments. The crucifixion is therefore happening to us individually, not even as a community, not as an event we observe together, rather as a consequence of the poetry and vision we encounter the crucifixion ourselves. It is not even a story we hear and imagine. The crucifixion has indeed occurred to you and to me. Should we be reluctant to jump into the Psalms for solace and strength as a result of their often spiritual and emotional demands, we can at these moments recall the great reliance that Christ actually placed on the words of the Psalms, written centuries before his birth. For example, in Mark 12, Jesus recites this verse from Psalm 118, the same stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And from Matthew 22, Jesus recites this verse from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Further at the crucifixion from the cross itself, Jesus is said to have recited this verse from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Matthew and Mark both write that on the night of his arrest, after the Last Supper with his disciples, Jesus sang a hymn, which is believed to have been a psalm, before going to the Mount of Olives in Gethsemane. And who knows? Maybe Jesus indeed sang at that very moment the relevant verses contained in Psalm 22, that foreshadowed in some considerable detail the impending crucifixion itself. Then I ask, does the value the Psalms held for Christ's own spirituality give us some insight into the value the Psalms shall hold for us mere mortals? <laughs> 